Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 415. Today is June 5th, 2023. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, hey, in this episode, I want to give you a really quick rundown, sort of like a market review combined with some commentary on the global macro condition. And I'm going to sum all this up with a comment that was recently made by Berkshire Hathaway's Charlie Munger. Before we get all to that, just want to make a quick statement about my upcoming travels. And as a side note to my travel log here, I want to point out that I'm going against my normal grain. Normally, I try and chase 70 degree weather. So that means in the summer, if I'm making business trips, I'm normally headed north. And in the winter, I'm headed south. I do that as part of my overall lifestyle design. And this is one of the reasons why I tell people that I never plan to retire because I have a lifestyle business. Now, that doesn't mean that my business is all play and that I don't work. It just means that I've structured my work schedule and my work life in such a way that I love what I do. And for the most part, I can also do it independent of geography. And so that's part of my travel schedule, trying to chase 70 degree weather and at all times being where I really want to be. Ah, I'm digressing there. In any case, just a couple quick notes. I'm going to be in St. Petersburg, Florida around June 22nd, 23rd. Now, my schedule is really tight, but I bring this up because I know there have been some people in that area that wanted to meet with me, and I only have a really limited window of when I can meet during that period. And the other constraint is that I'm not leaving the downtown area. So I'm going to be in the heart of downtown St. Pete, if you're in that area or you can get to that area and you've wanted to meet with me face-to-face, learn more about what my firm does, well, that would be the time to do it. Get in touch with me, but do it quickly because, again, I just have a very limited window and I'm not going to be able to meet with more than one or two people. Okay, second trip, I'm going to be in Texas and my dates are flexible here, but somewhere around July 17th to 20th. Geographically, I'm going to be on that I-35 corridor between Fort Worth and Austin. Now, I have a nearly full pack schedule there, meeting with existing clients, but I probably can work in a quick meeting here or there. Again, if you're someone out there that's always wanting to meet me face-to-face and learn more about what me and my firm does. Hey, but back to the economy, back to the stock market. Uh, If you're listening to this podcast and if you're a long-term listener, I know you weren't taken by surprise that the debt ceiling was magically raised and all that was negotiated. We knew, along with any serious people on Wall Street, that there was virtually no chance of the U.S. defaulting. It was all political theater. It's all drama and programming manufactured by both the politicians and the media. But, of course, I'm being redundant there. In any case, that was all nonsense. What I do find interesting, and I'm not surprised by it, but I do find it interesting that with all the gloom and doom and all the real concern for U.S. as well as international deteriorating economic conditions, we're seeing the S&P 500 holding well above the 4,200 range. That's significant in and of itself, but the fact that it's closing in on 4,300 is even more impressive. Now, this rally is very narrow, and I'm not necessarily opposed to performance being consolidated in such a small amount of stocks. Uh, generally, that's, that is usually the case. But along with that is you have more breadth in the market. 
And that's really the sign of when we're in a confirmed uptrend or downtrend. I mentioned this before, and it's so obvious. It's so obvious, in fact, that for many, many years, it didn't even register in my own mind. But you know that you're in a decided trend, not by just the performance of an index, but by the actual stocks in that index. And it's a collective movement. To have a real secular trend, it can't consist of just a small minority of stocks. Anytime you have a broad sweeping uptrend, it's because at least 70% of stocks are going up. Likewise, you know you're in a downtrend or a bear market when at least 70% of stocks are going down. So that means in an uptrend, bad stocks go up as well as the good. And in a downtrend, good stocks go down as well as the bad. Well, right now, we're primarily seeing the market moving up, but based on a very small amount of stocks. Last time I calculated it, little less than 60% of the S&P 500, but even about 60% of the overall universe of stocks that are traded on U.S. exchanges. So you're looking at in excess of 8,000 stocks. About 59 or 60% of those are trading below their one-year moving average. That's thin ice. That's reason for concern. Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but the point I want to make here is that, as I've said repeatedly over the last few months, as bad as economic conditions look, we're not yet in a recession because there is still way too much liquidity and money floating around in the system. Probably in excess of a good two, two and a half trillion dollars of excess M2 money supply. That's what's fueling all these little micro bubbles. If you remember, we started out the beginning of this year with all kinds of enthusiasm that China was going to go on at all-time record highs. Well, yeah, Chinese stocks definitely got a boost, but look at where they are now. You know, we're not even six months later, and since January, the broad Chinese market is down at least 17%, and the high-tech sector of that is down even more. And let's think back just what happened a couple months ago. Do you remember all the panic and hysteria over bank failures? Well, that has quickly evaporated, hasn't it? And just as quickly as that disappeared, the rage and the hysteria, the craze over artificial intelligence has all of a sudden sprung out of seemingly nowhere. And that's really one of the main reasons that we're seeing the S&P 500 at such a high level. Now, I'm a big believer in artificial intelligence. I wrote a book about that and robotics some seven years ago. And while I definitely see the opportunities in that, uh, when I wrote that book, I also dedicated an entire section about not getting caught up in hype and hysteria. This hysteria over artificial intelligence reminds me of around, I think it was 2018, when there was all kinds of hope and enthusiasm, I guess you call it hopium, about Disney stock and Disney Plus and how that was putting Disney into the streaming business. Well, what was so interesting about that is that when the hysteria hit and the price of Disney stock went up, there was no new announcements around Disney Plus. Everybody knew for years that they were getting into that business and they'd been into Hulu and other streaming services for a long time to prepare for it. But all of a sudden, the concept of Disney streaming was part of the zeitgeist on Wall Street and you saw the price of Disney stock rocket up. And of course, that was amplified because of the stay-at-home nature of the pandemic. But where are we at today? Well, if you don't know, pull up a chart at Disney and the scorecard there will show you 
that all the enthusiasm and the hype about Disney and the streaming business and Disney Plus, it has all evaporated about as quickly as it came. And it's almost hard to believe, but Disney's stock right now, today, is trading almost as low as it did during the depths of the early phases of the pandemic. I mean, think about that. All the Disney parks were shut down. All the movie theaters are shut down. All the Disney cruise lines are shut down. That was happening in March and April 2020. That was some bad times for Disney. And yet, the stock price today is not too much above those levels. Why is that? Well, that's because all the enthusiasm and the hopium about Disney streaming, well, it was just enthusiasm and hopium. It wasn't based on real fundamental value. And so consequently, the peak that Disney stock put in back in, I don't know, probably about two years ago, around the spring of 2021, well, Disney's stock is down more than 50% from those high levels. Now, that's not to say that Disney's a bad company or that Disney's a bad long-term investment. But what it is to say is if you bought Disney during the hype, then you've lost a lot of money. And the time to be buying Disney is not when everybody's talking and enthusiastic about it. That's the time to be selling it. Well, I think you can draw that direct analogy to all the hysteria that's going on right now with artificial intelligence. As a side note, and to digress a little bit more here, a point that I made in my book was that artificial intelligence is not called artificial wisdom. So before you start getting all excited about AI, step back and take a look at the bigger picture and the real realities and the roadblocks that are there, as they are with the adoption of all new technologies. Back onto the main topic. The global economy, the macro effect, the impact on the U.S. economy, things are not looking good. And in spite of that, S&P 500, like I say, is floating at 4,300. That's a critical level because if you pull up a chart of the S&P 500 and it sort of looks like a skewed W, well, that center apex of the W is where the S&P 500 hit about 4,300. That was the high in August of last year. And again, we're flirting with that level now. The reason that's important is because when you look at a traditional double bottom pattern, on a stock chart, if the price can break out above that center apex of the W, well, that generally means that the market can go on to put in some significant uptrends in a new rally. Now, are we headed for that right now? I don't think we are. Again, technically, the chart looks pretty good, but if you look at the fundamentals, and I'm talking about global fundamentals, the upside is extremely limited. We know that corporate profits are continuing to decrease. We know that all the United States leading economic indicators, and you can check this out by the organization called the Conference Board, they put out a very respectable monthly update on leading economic indicators. It's really the gold standard for measuring the health of the U.S. economy. It's very predictive of where GDP is going, and that index has been declining for the past 14 months. Actually, that's wrong. It's the last 13 months it's been in decline, but I anticipate it to go down this month as well. If you look at that chart, you'll see that the only time in the last 30 years or so that we've been in this much of a declining trend of economic indicators, it's only happened twice before, and that was leading up to the dot-com bubble, and then things got much worse during the financial crisis of 2008. 
Now, I don't know if we're headed there, but unless those indicators improve and they haven't bottomed yet, well, then it's a pretty good indication that things are going lower. And it's not just limited to the U.S. If you look at the global GDP, the only country that's really showing above average, and I'm talking just modestly above average performance in terms of manufacturing index, it's the country of India. And a lot of that has to do with geopolitical uncertainty, and it's obviously shifting production from countries like China to India, and then also because of the cheaper oil that's escaping sanctions coming out of Russia, that less expensive oil below market price is finding its way into India. So India is picking up additional business from China, and their energy costs are going down. That's a limited time scenario, and it's really only impacting a small hand of countries like India, perhaps the Philippines and Vietnam. But other than those countries, looking around the globe, economic indicators are all in decline, and that's especially true in the United Kingdom and the European Union. Inflation there is still rampantly high, and those countries are either possibly in recession now or likely headed to recession. And this isn't just me talking. This isn't just my estimation of what's happening. Look at market indicators that aren't easily manipulated. Look at the price of oil. OPEC is cutting production for the second time in less than six months. Why are they doing that? Because the global economy is slowing down. Look at the price of copper. Copper is barely holding 360, 375 a pound. That is not an indication of an expanding global economy. So yes, when I look at the uptrend in the S&P 500 and I look at the fact that the S&P 500 is above 4,200 and that it's flirting with 4,300 and that that could be a crucial breakout pattern, yes, I understand, I get all that. But again, when I look at the fundamentals, I see a whole lot more downside risk than upside risk. And I don't think my opinion on that is gonna change until we get some clarity on where corporate profits are headed. And for now, it's going to be extremely difficult for corporate profits to accelerate rapidly because of all these headwinds. Inflation is extremely persistent, and that's going to make it difficult for the Federal Reserve to ease up on monetary policy. Even if they pause on raising rates, I think they're still very likely to keep rates at a high level for longer. That's restrictive on the economy it causes the borrowing costs for corporations to go way up. Now, the Federal Reserve is meeting in less than nine days. We'll maybe get some resolution on that front, but I don't think it's going to be as friendly to Wall Street as a lot of people think. The other thing that is related to monetary policy, but it's really more fiscal policy and it's coming out of the Treasury Department, is that now that the budget ceiling has been extended, that means that over the next six months or so, the Treasury is going to be issuing debt like a drunken congressman. So we're looking at probably more than a trillion dollars of T-bills being issued between now and the end of the year. That potentially could put a big liquidity drain on the economy as money that otherwise could go to corporations is going to be sucked up by the government. And you combine that with the fact that we know that banks are tightening up lending standards Companies' borrowing costs are not only going up, but their access to that capital, if they can even afford it, is also being limited. Again, that's all bad news for corporate profits, especially for the smaller, more brittle type companies. 
And then finally, one of the big things that's been holding up this economy, it is that strong jobs market. It is that consumers have money. And we know that the American consumer will always spend money as long as they have a job or as long as they have access to a credit card. But that access is starting to diminish, even though the unemployment rate hasn't gone up very much. We know that the lower end of the economy is starting to dry up, and we saw that in an announcement last week from Dollar General. Now, Dollar General is a deep discounting retailer. A lot of people piled into their stock because they thought that if we were headed to a recession, that deep discounting retailers would be companies that would be, you know, fireproof. Well, that's not the case. Dollar General announced that they've seen a significant decrease in their sales and profitability. And it's because that their key demographic consumer, who is on the lower pay scale and socioeconomic level, is drying up. And what they specifically said is that they're losing sales, not to another retailer, but the fact that their customers don't have enough money to shop in their stores, and so they're increasingly relying more on food banks. So again, one more sign of the fragility and the overall economic decline of leading economic indicators. And that leads me to want to follow up on the big elephant in the room that for some reason most people on Wall Street aren't talking about. It's been a headwind and a known problem for a long time, and that's the deterioration in the value of commercial real estate. Now, not all the real estate is in danger. I know a lot of people are saying, oh, we're going to go back to a, a big housing meltdown like we saw in 2008. I think that tends to be the generals fighting the last war. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Home ownership is in a much better position than it was 15 years ago. We don't have the subprime loans. We don't have the variable interest rates. Uh, in fact, most homes that are owned today or that are mortgaged today have equity in them and they have long-term locked-in mortgages that are significantly below today's prevailing rates. So if anything, all of those factors support at least a stable single-family real estate market. But where there are major problems is in retail space and office space. And a lot of that has been masked because the spending on industrial real estate, things like the expansion of warehouses and data centers and manufacturing facilities and other infrastructure-type products, that's lifted the general commercial side of real estate up enough where it's masked a lot of these declines in the office space and retail space. Well, those chickens are coming home to roost. And while a lot of emphasis is on the problems that that's going to generate at the regional banks, because that's where all the lending is, what I think is being missed is that that is also going to have a significant impact to the bottom line of pension funds and insurance companies. Because those guys, from an institutional investment standpoint, are heavily invested in both office space and retail space. And those values have come down significantly from where they were pre-pandemic. That's a long-term trend. And again, that's something that I talked about in my book back in 2016, about the changing nature of demographics combined with robotics and artificial intelligence and its impact specifically on areas like office space and retail real estate. Okay, so that takes me to a comment from Charlie Munger. Now, I know he's widely quoted. I actually had an episode probably several years ago where I criticized him 
or some asinine statements that he made about uh, specifically being negative on Bitcoin and yet being positive on the management at Wells Fargo. It's actually a pretty cool episode. I have no idea where it's at, but maybe if you search the archives, you'll find it. In any case, Charlie, much like me, is an old curmudgeon. Now, he's a lot older and curmudgeonly than me. He's also significantly wealthier than me. Uh, so in a lot of ways, we do uh, sync up on our logic. But in any case, Charlie recently said, and by the way, Charlie is the vice chair of Berkshire Hathaway. And in terms of the economic outlook and specifically the health of the U.S. economy, here's what he said. A lot of retail isn't good anymore. We have a lot of troubled office buildings, a lot of troubled shopping centers, a lot of troubled other properties. There's a lot of agony out there. Well, Mr. Munger, I agree with you. There is a lot of agony out there. I don't think it's priced into the market, specifically not priced into the S&P 500. But having said that, I see this as all providing us with some excellent buying opportunities in the future. As we get closer into the end of 2024, I know that sounds a long way off, but it really isn't. But as we get into the end of 2024, I think there's some huge significant upside for the market and no coincidence there, it'll probably be timed around the November presidential elections. Well, hey, that's a long way off. We'll have to see how it all comes together. Until then, as always, this is John Pagliano wishing you the very best returns.